are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 6, please. I was thinking about revival and, and, how, and how churches think they're doing all right. Uh, preach, I remember when I was back in Bible college, back in 1973, a friend of mine and I traveled during the summertime holding revival meetings just like I'm doing now. Uh, and I remember calling a pastor one time and saying, you know, we're, we're coming into the area and, and uh, we're wondering, you know, we're from, from, uh, from the college here and wondering if you might have any interest in us coming. He said, oh, no. He said, our church is already revived. We don't need any outside help. Well, man, I, I was a pastor for 15 years, like I said, a small church, big church. Our one church, we had the high day of over a thousand, and I, you know, and, and things were going well. And I had, had a hunt, over 126 people one time walked out for salvation. But I've never been able to say, we're all revived. We don't need any help. I mean, that was a statement that I think could go down in, uh, you know, sort of an overstatement book, you know. But... I find that one of the things that prohibits us from having full revival in our hearts is the subject matter I want to cover with you tonight. Luke chapter 6, please, and verse number 37. It begins with this admonition here, Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive and ye shall be forgiven. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. You know, I guess one of the things that I used to deal with the most in the pastorate was not somebody coming and saying, you know, I'm, I'm on heroin, can you help me? He had a little bit of that. And it wasn't somebody necessarily coming and saying, I'm down on my luck, can you help me out with a dollar or two? Although you get some of that. But the thing I used to deal with quite often that just used to perplex me and it, and, it, and it hurt me to the quick was the fact that God's people would get out in their hearts against another of God's people and this fighting, fighting and fussing and fuming and, and all the rest of that. And by the way, not just church member against church member, but husband against wife and son against daughter and, uh, and uh, husband against uh, son and, and the children against parents. And certainly, it involves the church members and teenagers against other teenagers and sometimes preacher against people and sometimes people against pastor. But God said this. He said, now listen to me. There may come a time when you will have somebody honestly do you wrong. By the way, the only way you can forgive somebody is if they really do you wrong. Do you understand that? If you didn't do anything to me, how can I forgive you of anything? And God said, there is somebody out there that's going to read Luke chapter 6, verse 37, and I'm going to tell them that they must forgive somebody. Well, what's necessary in order for me to forgive somebody? It's necessary that you offend me, or that you do something that has the possibility of offending me. I'm not asking you tonight to sit out there and say, well, you know, I'm perfect, and everybody else is perfect, therefore this sermon doesn't apply. Yes, it does. The Bible says there is a forgiveness. There is a forgiveness that sets me free. Let me say it again. There is a forgiveness 
that I can offer to somebody, that when I offer that forgiveness, it will set me free. Let me tell on myself tonight so that I don't make anybody else mad and they'll have to exercise this sermon on me. When I was in Bible college, I came home and between my freshman and sophomore years to my home church where I was saved. Matter of fact, I was saved in uh, my home church in Hadley, Michigan, and a year and six months later I was off to Bible college. So I didn't have a lot of time to be ingrained in, a, in what a local church is all about. And uh, so the only church I knew was my home church. I came home between my, uh, my freshman and sophomore years of Bible college, and my preacher asked me to do some, uh, some of the following things. He said, I want you to teach the 9, 10, 11, and 12th grade Sunday school classes, boys and girls combined. I was thrilled to do that. I'm honored. I mean, I, I was excited that my preacher would let me do anything. He said, I understand you took uh, song leading in college. Yes, sir. He said, I want you to lead the congregational singing. I said, well, man, I'd be glad to. He said, um, I also want to ask you to do one more thing. I said, what's that? And he said, on a certain date this summer, and he gave me a date, I think it was like the third or fourth Sunday in June, he said, I want you to preach on a Sunday morning. Now, you have to understand what that means. I, I had spoken before as a Bible college student at youth hours. I'd even had some Wednesday nights. But there's something about that Sunday morning service that uh, you know, it's it sort of, I mean, you save that for something that's really big. I said, you want me on a Sunday morning? He said, yes, I do. He said, we're going to have a prayer meeting on a Saturday night before you preach, and uh, we'll pray for you and ask God to bless. I said, that'll be fine. I remember a preacher going to that prayer meeting on Saturday night. We had 14 men there at that men's prayer meeting on Saturday evening. We knelt there at the front of the auditorium, prayed around several times, and well, I wanted them to pray as long as they could. If they could have prayed through the morning service, that would have been fine with me. I was scared to death. And so um, I uh, went home after that prayer meeting, and I went to my bedroom and got down on my knees, and I started praying. Now, I'd never done what I'm about to tell you before. I'd never done this before. I started praying, and I read my Bible, and I prayed. And boy, you have to understand how, uh, how uh, I want to say distressed. That might not be the proper word, but you'll understand. I was really uptight about preaching on a Sunday morning service. And boy, I began to pray and beg God and plead and began to call people by name that God had helped me to be a blessing to them. And you'll never believe this, but before I understood what was going on, I had prayed all night long. I'd never done that before, and I'm not patting myself on the back because it was a total accident. I didn't mean it. I uh, remember looking at my watch. It said 5.30. I thought there was something wrong. I, I thought maybe it stopped at 5.30 the day before. And uh, I looked outside. Sure enough, the sun was coming up. The birds were singing. And I thought, oh, no, in just a few hours, I've got to preach. I'm still scared. But I was excited that I'd prayed all night long. I thought, God, you've got to bless that for some reason. I mean, God, you please, you've got to help me. So I don't recommend you have your devotions this way, but I grabbed my Bible and just flipped it open. And it turned open to the book of Joel, chapter 3. And here's the verses, I recall it. It just sort of jumped out of me like a neon sign. It said, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for today is the day of the Lord. Man, I was so excited because to me that meant that God was saying, Look, Wally, I'm going to give you some decisions today as you preach. As a matter of fact, not just one or two, but multitudes in the valley of decision. 
I was so excited, I went in and knocked on my mom's bedroom door. She said, come in. It was 5.30 in the morning. She was wiping the sleep out of her eyes. And I said, Mom, i got to tell you this. She said, what? And I told her, I told you, I prayed all night long, and I was excited. Open up the Bible, multitude, multitude, and a valid decision. Today's the day of the Lord. She said, that's nice, son. And so I sort of stepped out of there, closed the door behind me. I thought, well, she's not excited. I said, the preacher will be excited. I got dressed, took a shower, and... And uh, got dressed, went down to the church office. It was about 6.30, 6.45 in the morning. Preacher was there. I don't think a preacher necessarily has to be there that time of the day. And uh, But he was there that time, that, that, that Sunday morning. I knocked on his door. He said, come in. I said, preacher, I've got to tell you. Last night we prayed all night long. Yes, he said, I know that. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I went home after men's prayer meeting. I prayed all night long. I said, let me show you what the Bible says. And the multitude, multitude in the valley of decision, today's the day of the Lord. He said, now, Wally, I don't recommend that you have devotions like that. I said, well, okay, I, I don't recommend it either, preacher, but so I just prayed all night long, and I, I just grabbed it, and it just jumped out at me like a jack-in-the-box, and I, I thought maybe it meant something. He said, it doesn't mean anything. Oh. You know, when an 18-year-old kid comes into your office excited about what God has done, you sort of have, you know, if you're going to bring them down, bring them down easy. Don't jerk the whole rug up from under their feet and watch them fall. So I walked out of there and said, well, I guess God doesn't talk out of the Bible like that unless you have a program that you're going by, you know. You've got to, you've got to have an outline and you've got to follow it. I mean, you can't just open your Bible and have God talk to you. I was thinking that. By the way, you can. <laughs> now, I recommend, I don't recommend you substitute that kind of devotion. I mean, you have your normal, regular scheduled Bible readings, but there are times for man, when you need something from the Lord, you just open it up and start reading anywhere you look, and sometimes God has it right there for you. But I, I went out there, and I thought, wow, I mean, he, he tore me to shreds. Well, I preached that morning. Now, you got to understand, I was 18 years old. I was scared to death. And I, um, I had read somewhere, see, I hadn't even taken the classes to teach you how to preach yet. I, did, I didn't have a had not yet taken homiletics or hermeneutics and apologetics and all those other things that I don't still don't know to this day what they all are. But um, uh, so I didn't know what I was doing. But I'd read somewhere that you're supposed to start a sermon by sort of breaking the ice. And I'd read this little cliche out of somebody's book. Preachers read it, I'm sure. And uh, he, somebody's probably already said it across this pole, but this was not original of me. I read this somewhere. And it said, you ought to start a sermon with a statement like this. So I took that statement and copied it verbatim. And uh, so I went to the pulpit and I said, ladies and gentlemen, as I sat back there a moment ago, only God and I knew what I was going to say. I said, and now that I'm at the pulpit, I'm sorry to tell you that only God knows what I'm going to say. I've got no earthly idea. And they did what you did. It wasn't really a good icebreaker. I thought, boy, I'm off to a wonderful start. I told a joke, and he just sort of went, uh. By the way, if you ever tell a joke and they don't laugh, you know you're in trouble. Amen? And so I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I just preached. I preached. I had announced the topic the week before, the most neglected verse in the Bible. The most neglected verse in the Bible. Because the preacher said they had to put the title of my sermon in the bulletin. Well, after I gave him the title, I went home and said, where is that verse that's the most neglected verse in the Bible? It's got to be in here somewhere. I didn't know what I was preaching on that day. I just pulled it out of there. But, so I preached that morning. Let me tell you this. I, by the way, 
Please don't misunderstand me. I'm just telling you the story as it happened. When I gave the invitation, the church I grew up in had nobody get saved on Sundays. Never. Preacher mentioned a moment ago, folks got saved here last Sunday. I'm certain that's not an uncommon occurrence here that folks get saved. That's why you're here. Thank God for that. But our church never had anybody get saved. We're just... I don't know why, and I was too young to evaluate it. I was too young in the Lord to even understand that you were supposed to expect that. But when I gave the invitation that morning, down the aisle came five people to trust Christ as Savior. Nobody ever came before. I didn't understand what that was going to do to the preacher. Along with that, when the service was over, one of the fellows that had come to hear me preach that morning, my good friend, he came to me and he said, Brother Davis, I said, Yes, sir. He said, you know, when you had everybody standing by their heads and close their eyes? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I didn't close my eyes. Well, I thought, well, you don't have to be crying about it. It's okay. But he said, I said, well, well, why are you crying? He said, because when I had my eyes open, I counted how many people at the altar. He said there were 62 men and women and family members kneeling at the altar, getting right with God. He said, that never happens here. He said, I can't believe how God walked. He said, I'm so thankful to the Lord. Well, when the service was over, after the kind of service I just described, and by the way, there's only one reason we had a service like that with five saved, and I could go into the history of the people that got saved, and you'd be amazed. And there's only one reason why those 62 people were at the altar getting right with God. It was not the sermon preached by that 18-year-old scared-to-death kid preacher, it was all the glory of God. Well, when the service was over, the preacher ran out into the parking lot and grabbed people as they were going to their cars. And he said, what you saw this morning was not of God. He said, that was all emotionalism. He said, none of those decisions were real. He was grabbing everybody, running around just like, like, a, like a bee going from flower to flower, grabbing what nectar he could. He's grabbing this person, grabbing this deacon, grabbing that Sunday school teacher, grabbing that family. Now, by the way, as an 18-year-old kid preacher, I did not need to hear that my first Sunday morning sermon was not of God. I was a brand new kid preacher. And if it wasn't of God, he should have called me to the office and said, Wally, it wasn't of God. Let me help you get a sermon that will be of God. I didn't need him going to the parking lot and grabbing the church members saying, Wally Davis is a bum. It's all emotionalism. It's not of God. None of those, uh, none of those things will stick. By the way, I was back at my church that I got saved in this last August, and the man that came that morning to get saved, his name is Mr. Mason, he'd been going to that church for five years so he could play softball on the church softball league. They had a rule. If you played on the church softball league, you had to go to at least one service on Sunday, either the Sunday morning or the Sunday night service. He'd been going to church there for five years and had never been saved. He came that morning and got saved. And he's a deacon in that church right now, all these years later, so I know at least one of those decisions stuck. Let me tell you what happened to me. Listen to me carefully. I became incensed at my pastor. I became so angry and I became so bitter that that was my last Sunday in that church. Matter of fact, that was my last Sunday in any church. I did not go back to church that night. 
I was so hurt, and I was so bitter, and I was so angry that that preacher would do that to me. I did not go back that next Sunday. I did not go back, back the next Sunday, nor the next, or the next, or the next, or the next Wednesday, or the next Wednesday, or the next Wednesday. I, a Bible college student, stopped going to church. It came time to go back to Bible college. And I remember going and having this conversation with my father. I said, Dad, remember when I told you I was going to Bible college? You told me it was the dumbest move that I could ever make. He said, yes. My father was not for me going into being a preacher, and my dad was against me. Uh, if I was going to be a preacher, I should have gone to a regular college and instead of a Bible college, but um, he, he was against the whole idea. And I said, you know, you're right. I told my mom, I said, if that's the way Christians are, you can have the stupid church and do anything you want to with it. I'm done. I'm through. It's over. Forget it. I said to my dad, who had retired for 30 years in at General Motors and had a lot of influence and friends there, I said, Dad, I want you to get me a job at General Motors. I'm going to make my career working where you work. You did fine. That's what I'm going to say. Son, I thought God so-called, quote-unquote, called you to be a preacher. I said, Dad, you told me it was a dumb idea. I'm here telling you you're right. It's a dumb idea. I'm not going to be a preacher anymore. I'm not going back to Bible college. I'm not going back to church. I want to work in General Motors. He said, if that's your decision, sure, I'll get you a job. And I started working that summer at Pontiac Truck and Coach, a division of General Motors in Pontiac, Michigan. I quit. It was over. Done. Sunday morning at 6 o'clock, Tom Harrison was loading up his automobile to go back to Bible college. He saved a seat in the front seat next to the window for me. He had called, and I would not answer his phone call. He left a message with my mom. He said, tell Wally that I did not fill up that place in my car. I'm still counting on him going back to Bible college. I told my mom, I said, tell Tom Harrison he's wasting the room. I'm not going back to Bible college. I'm quit. People from the church who had come by to see me. When I'd see the car pull up in the driveway, we lived way out in the country in Michigan, way out in the boondocks, and you could see someone coming down your driveway. I'd see the car coming down the driveway. I'd go out the back door, go out in the pine trees we had on the back part of our property where they could not see me, but I could see when their car would come and go, and I'd wait till their car left, and I'd come back to the house. You say, why did you behave that way, Brother Davis? Because I was offended at somebody who honestly did me wrong. Oh, well, there's no, there's no if, ands, or buts about it. The preacher did me wrong. Do you want to know something? The preacher was still reading his Bible. I wasn't. You hear what I'm saying? The preacher was still tithing. I was not. The preacher was still in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday school. I was not. The preacher was still praying. I was not. Are you beginning to see the picture? Who was it that was being destroyed because he had been offended? I was. 
And it makes me shudder tonight to imagine what would have happened to me if I had stayed on my course of decision that I made that summer just because I got angry at somebody. My mom, on a Saturday night, about midnight, the next morning at 6 o'clock, the bus, so to speak, was leaving for Bible college. And my future was going down the drain. My mom got out of bed, slipped downstairs of our two-story home there in Michigan, and made a phone call to our next-door neighbor. Bill O'Brien lived next door to us. Bill O'Brien was a deacon in that Baptist church, and Bill O'Brien was one of the best friends I had. Bill O'Brien was the man that got me to church on a Wednesday night, the night that I got saved on March 13, 1968. And she said, Bill, are you just going to let Wally throw his life away without coming down here to let him have it? Bill said, I've been wondering about that myself, what to do. He said, I'm coming. Now, Bill had to leave for work at 4 o'clock in the morning, every morning, Monday through Friday. He lived, uh, he, he worked 90 miles away. The joys of being able to live in the country and work in the city, amen. But lived 90 miles away every, 90 miles down, 90 miles back every day of his life. So my mom called him, Bill was asleep. There was a knock at my bedroom door. You know how unusual that is to have someone knock on your bedroom door? I mean, you think, well, well come in, ring the doorbell, who is it, you know? I said, come on, Bill O'Brien. I, I wasn't asleep. I was miserable. I was wrestling. I knew what I was doing was wrong, but I didn't care because I was mad. Bill O'Brien came in and looked at me. His hair was all messed up, sticking up. His pajama bottoms were sticking out the bottom of his pant legs. He came in and pulled a chair up next to my bed and sat down. And he said, Wally. And I said, now, Bill. And I started to try to talk. He said, shut up. He had never spoken to me like that before. Matter of fact, he'd never spoken to anybody on earth like that before. He was the most mild-mannered guy you ever seen in your life, and he just told me to shut up. So I did. Someone has their hair sticking up and look as mean and blurry out as him, and you do, you hush. His eyes were so bloodshot, if he'd held his eyes wide open, he'd bled to death. I mean, he was tired, and he was angry, plus he was concerned, and he said, Now, Wally, and for the next 35 or 40 minutes, that man preached me the most convicting sermon I've ever heard in my life. He got through and he says, now, why don't you get right with God? And I didn't say, yeah, but Bill, you understand, it's his fault. Because I realized after he had laid it on me, I mean, he, un he, he unloaded the whole truckload there, brother. I said, Bill, you're right. Man, I began to cry. And an entire summer of bitterness burst over the dam of rebellion. I remember throwing myself on my knees next to Bill. I said, Bill, pray for me. He prayed. And he said, now you pray. And I tried. I couldn't get anything to come out. The Bible says there are some times you need to pray that you don't even know what words to say, and the Holy Spirit of God gives you utterance. And I'm not talking about rolling around the floor and throwing up and, and frothing. And, and I'm not talking about that kind of junk. There are times when all you can just do is say, oh, God, oh, God, oh, and you don't even know what words to say because you don't even know what to ask for. That was the condition I was that night. And I finally said, God, forgive me. And he said, you want me to call Tom? I said, call Tom. Tell him I will need that seat. Bill called Tom at 5 o'clock that morning. Tom was up getting ready to leave. He said, I have it open. I knew he was going to come. 
Bill said, Wally, throw your stuff together. I had not packed one bag. I had not packed one pencil, not one piece of paper. I started, have you ever packed to leave house to go to college in an, in, in an hour? Man, I threw stuff in there that I didn't even know. I, I even had some of my mom's pose in there when I got to college. I was grabbing stuff out of the dryer and throwing it in there. That's embarrassing to arrive at college and have your mom's clothes in there. They, where are you? Well, you know, what a side of me you don't know about here, but if I'd been from San Francisco, I'd really had some trouble explaining that one. But I said, Bill, before you drive me down to the parking lot to meet Brother Harrison, I said, drive me over to the preacher's house. Remember pulling up to the front of that home and knocking on the door. The preacher came to the door. You should have seen his eyes. I mean, you can imagine how I looked when Bill O'Brien came walking into my bedroom. He looked like that times about 30 when, I, when he saw me standing at his door. And I said, Preacher, I just stopped by to say a couple of things to you. I said, Number one, I am sorry for the way I behaved all summer. I said, and number two, I just have to say this. You may not agree that I even need to say it, but I said, but preacher, I've got to say it. He said, what's that? I stuck out my hand. He stuck out his hand, and I looked at him, and I said, I forgive you. And when I said those words to my preacher, it was like the fireworks of glory took off in my heart. And I went from a kid that was bitter and mean and angry and rebellious and quitting the ministry to pursuing the lifestyle that has led me here to traveling around the country preaching the old-time book tonight. You know what happened? When I forgave him, I was set free. There is a forgiveness that you can give to somebody that when you give it, it will set you free. By the way, you're sitting there saying, well, I don't need to hear about that. Well, what? I don't see any glorified bodies in this room tonight. You mean to tell me that nobody has ever made you mad in your life? You mean men to tell me that you've never pouted at your wife all day and all night? Well, not me, Brother Davis. I'm Mr. Charles Atlas Christian. If there's a man in this room today that has not pouted to his wife, you're not much of a man. <laughs> and is there a woman in this room tonight that has not pouted at your wife or at your husband at some time or another? Is there a child in this room that has not pouted at your mom and dad at some time or another? But you say, Brother Davis, they deserve me to pout at them. They really did me wrong. Yes, and as far as I know, the only way you can forgive somebody is when they really do you wrong. Yet around this country, I see churches that are filled with people, and I see, I see uh, Christians around this country that have bitterness in their hearts, and they have something in their heart against somebody, and then we go to the Lord and say, God, send us revival. Forget it! God can't revive us when we walk around having uh, bitterness and grudges in our hearts one against another. How in the world? How in the world? Can we expect God to answer our prayers when we are not on praying ground? 
If I get on my knees tonight and ask God to send revival, and I've got something in my heart against another Christian, I might as well be spitting in the wind because it's getting no further than that. Forgive, and thou shalt be forgiven. There's a forgiveness that sets you free. Then there's a forgiveness that sets others free. There's a forgiveness that when you give it, it sets you free. There's a forgiveness that when you give it to somebody, it will set them free. Turn your Bibles, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And verse number 7, please. The Bible says, So that contrariwise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. God says there is an occasion, or there will be an occasion, that somebody will do something really dumb. Or they'll do something really malicious. And you'll get bitterness in your heart towards that person, and you'll hold that thing over their head. But God says, wait a second, not only do you need to forgive that person so that you won't be ground up in the mill of bitterness, He said, but you need to forgive that person lest they be overcome with overmuch sorrow. I remember a young girl that was in my junior class of high school. She had borrowed her daddy's car, a brand new car back in 1968 or 69, and she wrecked her daddy's car. Now, she didn't get up that morning and say, man, this is a wonderful day. I'm so excited to be alive. I think I'll wreck my dad's car today. I'm just so excited. I can't wait. I wonder, I wonder where would be a good place to dent the car. Nobody ever plans on that unless you're driving a demolition derby. On other hand, I think some teenagers do do that. But at any rate, she wrecked her daddy's car. He came down on her so hard. I mean, for weeks, he just would, on her case, you wrecked my car, you stupid girl. You'll never drive again. You wrecked my car. You don't care about anything. Oh, you care about yourself. You know the typical stuff that moms and dads on occasion unload on their children. One morning, they went into awaken this girl to go to school. The school I went to, Goodrich High School, little tiny School. We everybody knew everybody in our school. This morning, this particular day, she would not awaken out of her sleep. She was dead. A little note on the nightstand next to her bed said, Daddy, I'm sorry. I wrecked your car. I hope you'll forgive me. That might be an extreme example of what it means that somebody would be overcome with overmuch sorrow. But God says there are occasions when you must forgive somebody lest we push them to that point. D. Pearson went over to visit his girlfriend. On the way home that night, even the police officers that went out with all their measuring devices measured the skid marks and said he was not speeding, it was not his fault, he was within the scope of the law. 
The night was a night probably much like you'd have around here, a drizzle, dirt road, a hill, and the bottom of the hill was a curve. Timmy's mom and dad, or mother, stepped out on the front porch and called him in from his late night or late evening baseball game to come in and eat supper. Timmy said goodbye to his friends and began to run home and eat supper with his family, and he stepped in a little mud puddle. When he did it, grabbed his shoe and the suction, pulled his shoe off his foot, he stopped, turned around, reached down, picked the shoe up, stuck it on his foot, and without looking, continued to run across the street to go home. And when he did so, he ran directly into the path of D. Pearson's car. I received a telephone call that night about 11 o'clock. I was a senior in high school. D. Pearson and I were like that all through school. We were together constantly at school. Before I was saved, I had played in a rock and roll band with D. I had spent hours and hours and nights and weeks on end at his home. It was like a second place for me to live. Mrs. Pearson called me on the phone that night and she said, Well, you've got to come over. I said, What's wrong? She said, D has been involved in an accident. And he keeps crying that he's got to see Wally. Would you come over? I said, sure. Man, I got in my car, went and told my mom. I said, Mom, I don't know what's wrong. Dee need me to come over. Can I, can I go? She said, sure. I got there. Mrs. Pearson met me at the front door. She put a big old bear hug around me and kissed me on the cheek with a motherly concern. And she said, Wally, you don't know this, but she said, Dee ran over little Timmy. Man, my mind began to race. Timmy. Well, Timmy's brother, Tom, was on our football squad. Timmy's brother, or sister, Mary, was one of the varsity cheerleaders. We had been to their home many a time. We'd been out to pizza together with their family. I said, well, what happened? She says, he killed him. He's upstairs. He's upstairs. And I went up those stairs, went into that familiar room that I'd spent many a night in, sleeping overnight at my buddy's house. I remember sitting, watching across the room. Dee was sitting on the edge of one of the twin beds in the room, had his head buried in his hands, weeping. He said, Wally, I killed him. I killed him. I killed him. I don't want to live. I killed him. I don't want to live. We tried to talk, and he said, you don't understand. He said, well, I hit him tonight. I didn't run over him. He said, he hit the front of the car, bounced up over the hood, and he's... Head hit the windshield right in front of my face. I can't close my eyes. That's all I can see. I don't want to live. I killed him. I spent the night. Three days later, the funeral was held. Closed casket. Little church downtown. Church is gone. Torn down now. The church downtown, Goodrich, Michigan place was packed. Everybody in the school that knew Timmy and Tom and Mary and the family, they let us out of school to go. Had a little tiny school, public school, but there are many Christian schools today a lot larger than our little public school was. Just a unique kind of a place where I was reared. The preacher preached a gospel message. At the end of the sermon, they came down to usher the casket out. 
The pallbearers came behind the funeral director and followed the casket out on the rollers. Directly behind the casket followed Timmy's mom and dad, arm in arm. That little building that was packed and jammed, I guess 250, maybe 300 people. I was sitting in the very last pew in the back row, and directly in front of me, right in front of me, was Dee Pearson, the young man that had accidentally taken the life of that little boy. Through the sermon he wept, and it kept ringing through my ears, I killed him! I don't want to live! I killed him! I don't want to live! During that service, he sat back there and sobbed. His body was shaking up and down. The casket went by. Timmy's father and mother stopped. Dee Pearson was in the next to the last row on the left-hand side of the aisle, right on the aisle seat. Timmy's daddy stopped, turned loose of his wife turned toward thee, and the whole place collectively held their breath, wondering what this grieving daddy was going to do, what kind of scene might be created. What is a grieving heart capable of saying to a young teenager at a moment like that? We saw that man reach down with his big old muscular hands and reach hold on either side of these shoulders and pull him to an upright standing position right there in the aisle of that church. And that man said, Son, one of the dearest things in the entire world was just rolled out of this building. My youngest son, my youngest child. He said, My heart hurts so bad today, I don't think I can live. He said, But my wife and I thought we had to say this to you before we left. He said, Son, it's not your fault. We forgive you. And he let thee go. The church emptied out. And I remained in my seat in the last row of the church, and Dee remained in his seat directly in front of me, and the building was empty. Dee had sat down and buried his head in his hands and wept, and when the entire building was gone, he threw himself headlong, stretched out in that pew, and he cried like an infant. And when he was done, I reached my hand over the pew and I said, Dee, are you all right? He looked up at me and he said, I'm so sorry for that family. He said, but what that man just said to me, he said, I can live now. I can live now. Now listen to me. You know what keeps you from saying to somebody, I forgive you? Stinking, dirty, filthy, rotten pride. Why well, say I for, I'm sorry to you if you'll say I'm sorry to me first? Why don't you just decide tonight you'll be first? Step aside that facade of pride and tear down those walls of you wanting to build yourself up as the macho one. Forgiveness that sets you free when you offer it to somebody else. Forgiveness that sets somebody else free when you offer it to them. She came to me after a service at a big youth rally. There were about ten...
They had over 500 teenagers in a big camp in northern Michigan. I was preaching, and when I got all done, I saw her coming at me, preacher. You, you've had folks do that, I'm sure. When you see them coming, there's a look on their face, and you say, uh-oh, I've had it now. I said something made that person mad. And they had that look on their face. I thought, well, here it goes. She came up to me, and if she'd been a hen, she'd have flogged me. She got my face and went, boy, she called me every name in the book. And I came to find out later, she was one of the counselors. I thought, man, God help me. I got to spend, it was only the first night, and I had the rest of the week to go. Her husband was there, and she said, you don't know what you're talking about. And I said, ma'am, that's right most of the time, but what is it that I don't know what I'm talking about that you're referring to? She said, this thing of forgiving somebody. She said, look here, buddy. She reached down, and she had on a long sleeve blouse, and she grabbed that thing. Her husband standing right there next to her. Grabbed that thing, pulled it all the way up to her shoulder. Showed me some of the most grotesque, deformed marks on her arm I've ever seen. Ugly, deep, crevice and crater-type scars. She said, let me tell you about forgiveness. She said, my daddy, when I was a little girl, used to come home drunk. We'd hear him come on the door, and we'd run to our bedrooms and hide in the closet and hide under the beds. It'd make him mad that we'd run to hide from him. He'd come in to find us and pull us out by our legs or grab us by the hair of our head and pull us into the living room. Said while we were in there, he'd take these big old giant stogie cigars. And he'd take those things and stick them on our arms and burn us. She said, don't you tell me about forgiveness. I will never forgive him. I said, ma'am, judging by what I've seen on your arm and judging by what you just told me, I said, humanly speaking, I would say, you know, I finally found the one incident that I agree that you ought not to forgive that man. I said, but I have a problem. I have a Bible that says forgive. Now, I have to go by the Bible. I can't go by my human reason. She stomped her foot. She said, all you preachers are the same. Always going to the Bible. Amen. Pretty good place to go to. Amen. Get to blame it on him that way and take the heat off you. Well, she sort of left me with that statement, and my ears are ringing. Oh, wow, I just got a sermon and a half, buddy. Had everything but the invitation. The next morning at breakfast. By the way, when you're a preacher, it's always a little bit this way. When you walk into a dining hall and you're a preacher, you know, people, they, they like you fine, but, I mean, you are a preacher. No one wants to be around you. Because, you know, they're afraid that they won't say something just right or that they'll have on some perfume that you preach against. or so, You know, you, you, you have all these hang-ups. The, the, the greatest, the, 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 the most stressful moment in a person's life is when the preacher stops in unannounced at the house. Oh, is there a magazine out that he's against? There's, oh, is there something on the table that he's against? Is there something on the TV? That he's, I mean, you're, you're, we just have an effect on people that way. We don't mean to. Just the Lord built us that way. So I was sitting down at a table, I'd gone in, and nobody had come to sit down with me. Not even 
the counselors. Preachers learn to live that way. Now, it's not that way in a church because here we have your pastor, you love him, and, and uh, he already knows all the things you do wrong anyhow, so it doesn't matter. You have anything to hide, amen? But uh, there, when you're out visiting like that, people, did, they approach you very slowly. Well, here she came in the door. Five hundred folks in the dining hall. I'm sitting alone over the table because I've got clergyitis. And she spotted me across the dining hall, and she came across the dining hall like a woman on a mission. I thought, oh, no, here it comes again. She found some more points for her sermon. And the closer she got, the more intensity I saw in her face. I thought, man, I'm going to get yelled at right here in front of all these teenagers, and my respect is going to go right down the drain what little bit I do have left. She got over in front of me, and she said, you ruined my night. And I thought, I haven't been sleepwalking. I don't know what she's talking about. I said, ma'am, how did I ruin your night? She said, I didn't sleep a wink all last night. It's your fault. I said, what did I do? She said, you preached that sermon. And I got mad at you last night and bawled you out. She said, and I just got through telling my husband that you're right, and I'm not right, and I need to get right with God. Would you pray for me? Well, they sat down at the table, and we prayed. I got a letter about two and a half, three months after that episode I just described to you. In the letter, she said, Brother Davis, I asked my husband when we got in the car to leave that youth meeting. If he would drive me to my father's home, which was in a distant city, I had not seen my father for 15 years and had not spoken to him for that long. We drove to his house. I knocked on my dad's door. He answered the door, and she said, Daddy, before you say anything, she said, I just had to stop by and say, I forgive you. And I'm sorry that I've been so hateful, and I love you, and I want you to be my daddy, and I want to be your daughter. And she said he went to church with me that Sunday, and he got saved. The most heinous crime you can describe for me only describes one thing, describes a person who needs saved. That daddy that had done such a dastardly thing to his little girl, was horrible, but that daddy needed saved. And he didn't get saved until that person said, I forgive you. I don't understand it, but there's a forgiveness that sets me free when I give it to somebody. And there's a forgiveness that sets somebody else free when I give it to them. Could I take about seven minutes to tie this together. Turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 18. Verse 21. Matthew 18, 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him till seven times. Peter thought he was being rather benevolent there. He said, well, you know, seven times, I mean, that's enough. The Lord said, in verse 22, Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. In other words, 
Just keep on and 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 keep on. Well, you forgive someone enough times and you form a good, you, you're getting a good habit. Amen? And then the Lord went on and probably saw Peter's dumbfounded look trying to figure out what 70 times 7 added up to. And the Lord said, wait a minute. He said, therefore, verse 23, is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. In today's money, it would be about $10 million. Anybody in this room in debt, $10 million, raise your hand. I'd like to meet you after the service and ask you to go ahead and, and get indebted just a little bit more. I've got a project I want to work on with you. <laughs> $10 million, that's a lot of money. I've never personally met anybody outside of seeing Donald Trump on television that was in debt $10 million. Verse 25 says, For as much as he could not pay his Lord, commanded him to be sold, his wife and his children and all that they had, and payment to be made. Now the servant therefore fell down, worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I'll pay thee all. The check's in the mail. Ten million dollars, no problem. I'll have a candy sale this weekend with my family. We'll get the money to you. And where's he going to come up with ten million bucks? Then the Lord of that servant, verse 27, was moved with compassion, and he loosed him and forgave him the debt. Can you imagine that? Anybody in this room have a mortgage on your house with a bank? Raise your hand. Anybody have a car loan? Raise your hand. Anybody have any credit card uh, outstanding bills? Raise your hand. Anybody owe any money to any person or any living creature, any living organization in the world? Raise your hand. What if tomorrow morning the bank president that had the mortgage on your home sat down with the vice presidents of that bank and said, you know, <laughs> I was just looking at the file for old brother Joe here. He owes us $128,000 on his house and he doesn't have enough money in the bank to buy a Domino's pizza. I just have compassion in my heart for brother Joe. Let's forgive him the debt. And they called Joe on the telephone. Hey, Joe. Yeah. No, the $128,000 yours. Well, I, the, the check's in the mail, sir. I, I meant to come in and make the payment. I'm sorry I'm behind three months, but no, wait, 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 wait. You don't owe us any money anymore. What? You're forgiven the debt. The house is yours. I wanted you and your wife to come by and sign the papers to pick up the title today. Now, I would have imagined that you could hear Brother Joe screaming all the way down to Santa Clara where I live. Amen. I mean, you'd hear me screaming all the way up here if all my debts had been forgiven by some bank president, had compassion. That's not what our friend did right here. The Bible says in verse 28, that same servant that had just been forgiven the $10 million, that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him an hundred pence. That's about 15 bucks. That's enough to take your family out to McDonald's, almost. And he laid hands on him. And he took him by the throat. This guy was serious. He wanted his $15. You see him down there, the guy's choking him to death. Someone says, why are you choking that guy? He owes me $15. Okay, go ahead. I'll help you kill him then. I mean, that's a big debt. I mean, he owed him $15. He's choking him to death for it. And he said, pay me that thou owest. 
29, the fellow's servant fell down at his feet. That's what you do when someone's choking you to death. Fell down at his feet, and he besought him, and he said, Have patience with me, and I'll pay thee all. And he would not, but went out and cast him into prison that he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servant saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Follow me. March 13, 1968, I went forward to an old-fashioned altar and knelt there with my preacher. And he said, Wally, why are you coming? I said, I need to get saved. And that night, March 13, 1968, Wally Davis prayed for the first time in his life and trusted Christ as his Savior. I cannot put a price tag on how much God forgave me of that night. But let me use the sum of $10 million for the sake of our argument this evening. God forgave me my $10 million that night. One day, somebody came along and did me wrong. He became indebted to me for 15 bucks. And I wanted to take him by the throat and choke him to death. You did me wrong. I'll get even with you. I'll show you. God in heaven looks down and says, Hold the phone here, pal. You mean to tell me that I, with open arms and compassionate eyes, met you at the foot of the cross? And when you looked up into my face and saw the crimson flow that flowed out of the veins of my body and said you wanted me to forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and I said yes, and I that night forgave you of all your sins. You mean to tell me that after what I've done for you, you're going to hold something against that brother over there? What's wrong with you, Davis? Ladies and gentlemen, when our God in heaven has forgiven us of the ten million times a billion times a trillion, don't you think you can forgive the guy the 15 bucks that he's infractioned against you? I'm talking to people tonight that may not have talked to brothers or sisters in years. I meet them everywhere. I get letters quite often after a sermon like this, said Brother Davis, I hadn't talked to my brother in, in ages. I called him on the phone after that message, we got things right with God. Some of you haven't talked to your parents in so long because of some little tiff you got into. Some of you maybe have a fellowship with others, maybe even in this room, because all oh, they said something that hurt your feelings. Well, so what? There is a forgiveness that sets you free when you give it to somebody. There's a forgiveness that sets others free when you give it to them. There is a forgiveness that keeps you free with the Heavenly Father when you hold not the $15 against thy fellow servant. Now look up here. I want revival around this country so badly. You talk about a time and a day and age when we need it. 
I don't have time tonight to even begin to draw the list up for you, but you know our nation and our world's in a mess. Our churches, many of them are in messes. People hate the preacher and the pre preacher hates the people, and I know that's not the case here. Matter of fact, there's nothing that I've preached on tonight that occurs in this auditorium. This is the glorified church, but you know what I'm talking about. Husbands against wives and children against parents. And Christians against each other. And our Father looks down with a tear, no doubt, in his eye and says, Won't you forgive each other that you might be forgiven? Won't you forgive the brother lest he be overtaken and over much sorrow? Won't you forgive that you can remain forgiven? I'm not talking about your salvation. I'm just talking about keeping everything right between you and the Lord. Now look up here. Just taking a shot in the dark that there might be one normal person in this room tonight. I'm going to ask you to do something. Who is it that comes to your mind right now when I say you need to forgive them. Who are you thinking about? Who is it that you say, but, but Brother Davis, they honestly did me wrong. Yeah, that woman's daddy honestly did her wrong. Well, look what happened when she forgave. Who is it that comes to your mind when I say you need to forgive them? Just Forgive them that you might be forgiven. Or maybe you need to forgive them that they will not be overtaken and over much sorrow. Or maybe you just need to say tonight, just by the principle of the Bible, I need to live a life of forgiveness because I've been forgiven the $10 million. I'm not going to hold the $15 Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit KNVBC.com for Christian music you can trust.